This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, February 2nd, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. Gun control is supposed to reduce gun deaths, but the defensive use of firearms often prevents gun violence and the resulting deaths. A new report from the Cato Institute out today, Tough Targets, examines when criminals face armed resistance from citizens and what results. I spoke with the co-author of the report, Clayton Kramer. One of the interesting problems uh, is that uh, we really don't know a great deal about uh, how often uh, people use guns defensively and what the nature of those uses are. Uh, There's been considerable argument over the last, oh, 20, 25 years uh, about uh, how many defensive gun uses are there actually. Uh, Different surveys have come to very differing results, and as the paper explains, uh, some of that is a methodological problem, and uh, even I admit that the very high-end numbers seem a a little unbelievable, and the low-end numbers are not all that believable either. Uh, The other thing is the question not just how many defensive gun uses there are, but what sort of uses. Uh, There used to be an assumption made, even by a lot of people that were pro-gun, that uh, defensive gun uses were frequently, you know, criminals defending themselves from other criminals, you know, drug deals gone bad. Uh, One of the interesting things that uh, we found in uh, gathering uh, this 4,699 news stories uh, of defensive gun uses from 2003 to 2010 uh, was uh, how few uh, there were categories that you would call, uh, you know, either sleazy or, you know, plainly criminal sorts uh, using guns. Most of these are, in fact, the vast majority are uh, actually quite uh, upstanding, uh, quite normal people uh, defending themselves from criminal attack, and in some cases from animal attack as well. It's easy to call attention to the cases where uh, a gun has been uh, used inappropriately, where a gun has been used in a criminal act or has been used uh, mistakenly uh, in a way that that had a, had a bad outcome. Uh, I assume you're in some way trying to call attention to these cases where uh, uh, guns may not have actually been fired, that is to say brandished perhaps, and uh, sort of even out the cost-benefit analysis of for someone who has no particular affinity for the Second Amendment right. to just try to try to get a get a good handle on on the actual cost versus benefits of private gun ownership. Right, and uh, there are there are some examples that we have in there where uh, someone uses a gun in self-defense, and uh, the results are not you know, spectacularly pretty. In some cases, uh, the person using the gun uh, ends up being shot or killed himself. Uh, in many of those cases, though, it is very hard to see how the situation would have been any better if they had not had a gun at all. Uh, because uh, in some cases it meant that the uh, person attacking them now has a bullet wound and ended up in the hospital having to explain, uh, you know, what exactly happened here. Uh, in other cases, it was quite clear that uh, the person who was defending himself and ended up getting shot or killed uh, anyway uh, was not likely to have survived the encounter. It was obvious from the context that uh, the person doing the attack had no intention of allowing this person to live. Uh, there's one particular uh, news story that received very little press attention outside of Atlanta and was really quite startling. And it was a case where uh, there was a party underway, largely college students. Uh, two men forced their way in. Uh, they separated the men from the women. And one of the guys asked the other, do you have enough bullets? That is a absolutely chilling question to ask because it was pretty clear they were not going to allow any of these people to survive. And in fact, when one of the students uh, pulled out uh, his gun and proceeded to start firing, 
uh, he managed to uh, kill one of the attackers. And when he got to the other room where the women were, uh, they were already undressed. The attacker, uh, the criminal, was about to start raping them. And, you know, he, of course, had to leave the uh, apartment rather rapidly through a window because here was a guy shooting at him. One of the things that I find very interesting is that um, a recurring theme of uh, gun control advocates is, well, you know, there's really no point in you having a gun for self-defense because the bad guy will almost certainly take it away from you anyway. Uh, And especially, you know, women are presumed to be uh, so mild, gentle, and meek that uh, they'll have the gun taken away because they'll be afraid to use it. Uh, The interesting thing we found was that um, while there were quite a number of incidents where someone had a gun taken away from them, uh, usually it was not the victim who had the gun taken away from them. Uh, We found um, something like 11 cases where a person who had a gun uh, that they were using for self-defense had it taken away. We found well over 100 cases where the criminal was disarmed of his gun by the victim. Uh, In many cases, the victim didn't even have a gun when they started the attack. They managed to take it away from the person that was uh, either threatening them or, in one case, uh, uh, raping um, uh, the victim. Um, You know, the the, the rapist uh, stupidly put the pistol back in his pocket to enjoy what he was doing, and uh, the victim took the pistol away from uh, the uh, the rapist and shot him. Uh, so as I said, it, it, it was it was a little bit startling uh, because it does demonstrate that uh, criminals, for the most part, are not uh, the most brilliant or they may be overconfident because they have a gun. Uh, the gun taken away from you thing is actually more of a problem for criminals, it seems, than for the victims. Was there anything else surprising in, in compiling all these uh, news stories? I was a little surprised at the number of animal attack cases. Uh, we tend not to think about that, but uh, we had hundreds of examples of uh, situations where someone used a gun to defend themselves from sometimes wildlife, uh, mountain lion attacks, uh, and grizzly bear attack in uh, Denali State uh, National Park, for example, uh, and a surprisingly large number of attacks involving uh, dogs uh, that had gone bad. Uh, one of them was a pit bull that, you know, for no apparent reason, suddenly attacked an 11-year-old and proceeded to uh, rip him open. You know, damaging his intestines, uh, causing enormous damage. And fortunately, a neighbor uh, saw this, uh, grabbed his uh, revolver, and shot very carefully, shot the dog while it was attacking this boy. In Washington, D.C., until very recently, if someone broke into your home and you used a handgun that was assembled and uh, did not have a trigger lock and was ready to go, if you were to do that in your home, you would certainly be arrested and most likely prosecuted for doing so. Yes, and in fact, uh, in the preparation for DC versus Heller uh, in 2008, uh, that uh, rather uh, major US Supreme Court decision, uh, one of the things that was uh, used uh, by our side uh, was the fact that uh, there were uh, at least one example where someone was actually criminally prosecuted for shooting someone that had forced uh, entry into his home. And he was criminally prosecuted, uh, not because he shot him, but because he had the gun already assembled and loaded and ready to use when someone actually tried to force entry. Uh, To me, this is the most insane thing that you would ever do something like this. Uh, This is one of the reasons uh, similar sorts of cases, not just in D.C., are the reason that a number of states uh, have passed uh, what are sometimes called castle doctrine laws. Uh, California, oddly enough, uh, is one of the states that in the 1980s sort of led the way on this. Uh, what had happened was there was a, an incident in Los Angeles where, uh, about 1982 or 83, where a woman shot a man who had forced entry into her home uh, and was coming at her with a butcher knife that he had pulled out of a drawer. 
And the district attorney prosecuted her because uh, he said, well, you, she didn't really have good reason to think that he intended great bodily injury. Uh, and the California legislature responded to this absurdity by passing a law that makes a, a presumption that if someone forces entry into your home and they're not a relative or an acquaintance, uh, that they intend you great bodily injury. You know, the, the, the burden of proof is now on the prosecution to prove uh, that you did not have good reason to fear that this stranger breaking in was threatening you. And states vary in how they treat uh, uh, this it's it's it some sometimes referred to as a duty to retreat. Uh, yeah, very. I don't believe that any states now require you to retreat out of your own home. At one time, uh, a few states, Massachusetts, I believe, among them, required you to uh, continue retreating until your back was literally against a wall before you could use deadly force. Uh, but I believe uh, most states have since corrected uh, that had that provision have since corrected it. Um, Outside of your home, it's another matter. Uh, most states uh, still have, either by statute or by precedent, uh, a requirement that you are to retreat uh, as long as you can to avoid use of deadly force. And uh, the paper examines uh, some of the interesting questions that come up with that. I mean, there, there is, from a philosophic standpoint, an argument that you know, it might be best to avoid use of deadly force as long as you can. Uh, there are consequences to duty to retreat, and uh, the paper does point out that you know there may be a good case uh, for making this change uh, to eliminate this duty to retreat. Clayton Kramer is co-author of the new Cato Institute report, Tough Targets, When Criminals Face Armed Resistance from Citizens. You can download the report at Cato.org.